Welcome back to Across the Pond. We are back this time with an evening edition. Everything tried to stop us today. I had to battle through hordes of football fans on the tube. Barry has had to change his location because of ESCOM and its load shedding woes. And of course, my favorite friends upstairs with their kids that are trotting around. We are not going to be stopped. We are here. It's Across the Pond and it's episode five. So welcome back to Across the Pond. As I said, Barry is joining us from Johannesburg as always, except this time from a different location. He's had to change his normal film location to facilitate this podcast as a result of ESCOM's load shedding. Welcome, Barry. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. ESCOM decided we needed a change of setting. So for our YouTube viewers, I hope you're enjoying the new background. Uh, I had to race across here to my, my parents' place, and I'm borrowing their place for this podcast because, as you say, the show must go on. The podcast must go on. At all costs, absolutely. Let's get into it. It's going to be a busy one. The Week That Was. Right, the week that was, as I said, quite a busy one. I know our last two episodes have been long. This one is not going to be any different. Uh, We'll we'll try to keep it short and sweet, though. This last weekend, following from a lot of South African news, if you just joined the podcast, this is a global podcast, um, but we are definitely focused on the two opposites of the pond to which we sit, South Africa and uh, England. I'm in in London and, and Barry's in Johannesburg. So yeah, this last week, the Competition Commission in South Africa making a ruling that the data prices in South Africa must fall 30 to 50 percent in the next two months. Quite a bold statement that it's not a blanket decrease in the data bundle rate. It's actually trying to kind of fix the disparity between the smaller bundle offerings and the bigger ones. Barry, what's your take on this? It's about time. It's about time. In South Africa, we've been struggling with very high data costs for a long time now. And it's very clearly a very good thing to do for business, right? It's very clearly the right thing to do in this kind of country, especially in the kind of economic environment that we have in order to unlock that de- that development, unlock a lot of the potential that comes with cheap data. But as you say, because the, the, the major players in the market have had such a monopoly and have such control over it, they've been able to name whatever their price is. And so it really is about time. It's 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 legislation that's been in in process for a long time now a lot of people have been talking about it um, and it's good to see things finally happening I mean, as, as you said, I think about time is, is definitely going to be the sentiment of a lot of South African users. But uh, in terms of the stock exchange shareholders of Vodacom and, and MTN being the two cellular players that really uh, represent the bulk of the market, they're them not being very happy about this decision. Um, quite a tough one, I believe, uh, because there's a couple of other things at play here. So, yes. Let's quickly uh, just go back to basics. So I believe that the disparity between small bundle offerings and the big bundle offerings are sometimes 50-fold, which I think is quite significant. So first, if we avoid the discussion of South African rates versus uh, international, which we'll get to now, that disparity in itself, I think, is is quite telling. Um, And this certainly having an effect on, on the poor um, and, and having an effect on, on those who can't afford those big bundles. 
Yeah, definitely. And not only that, but the bundles are so out of whack that you often find out that even if you can afford the bigger bundles and you pay those extra prices, all of a sudden you get to the end of your 30 days and that all of that data expires. And so it's very strange for like a digital asset like this, which theoretically shouldn't have a limit, it shouldn't have an expiry date because it's simply numbers in a spreadsheet. Um, these companies have been putting artificial limits and artificial kind of pricing structures in place that don't really make sense. And so it's been, it's, it's something that I think has, been coming for a long time and they've been getting away with it for a long time and obviously now that they've faced the music they're obviously not very happy about it because they've been making a lot of money and a lot of their profits are coming from data we've seen a huge shift in those companies away from revenue from telephone calls and from sms's and those kinds of things and the majority of the revenue is shifting to data in this new world and so it's obviously going to be a big shock for these these big players but from a consumer perspective and from an economic perspective it it makes all the sense in the world I mean, as you say, being somebody on the ground, I think it's really hard to see how some of these data costs in South Africa compare to the rest of the world. So let's delve into that a little bit. Um, I've heard one of these uh, basically conversations between, uh, you know, quite a prevalent market commentator in this space. Um, and he brought up the issue of Spectrum. So Spectrum, as far as I understand, being something to do with the broadband, um, obviously to try and avoid having just two big players in the economy. Um, basically, the, the South African government has gotten involved in some way and started regulating this spectrum. So everyone is allotted a certain amount of bandwidth from what I understand and of course Vodacom and MTN being the two biggest have a limited amount of this bandwidth. Now one of the reasons why they justify this price being so high is that they aren't able to get their spectrum so they have to refarm it. Um, in other words meaning buying that spectrum from another player at a markup rate. Now do you think this is a justifiable reason for the uh, massive difference in, in rates of South African data versus internationally um, or do you think this is just trying to find an excuse? I think there's a little bit of truth there. I think there's a little bit of truth because from my discussions and the, the, the conversations I've had around this topic, I do know the South African spectrum is a little bit wonky in the sense that when it was set up like decades ago and they were allotting the various pieces of the spectrum to various providers, they weren't thinking far enough ahead and they probably weren't able to predict what the system would look like today. And so the infrastructure in place is maybe not set up perfectly for a 21st century world or for a 2019 world. And so I'm sure there is some truth to the fact that the spectrum is a bit messed up and because of these companies have to operate in their little like lane, as far as I understand it, there are some constraints there. However, we are moving in towards a 4G, 5G world, which is opening up more parts of the spectrum. And so I'm assuming that these, these constraints are going to become like non-existent over time and as we open up more opportunities for communication I think it should become a non-issue but I don't know enough about the technicalities to know how soon that's going to be um, that being said I'm sure they also are over exaggerating it as well to try and push their point so I, I can sure. see both sides what do you think Chad? Absolutely. You know, I, I definitely I definitely agree with you. Um, I think there is a little bit of truth there. And it, it's quite a tough one when from the one side, the Competition Commission is saying, hey, we need more competition. Ultimately, let's regulate your spectrum. And on the other side, they're saying, well, now we actually need to limit your data prices as well. Um, and for the two companies that are really holding the bulk of the CapEx budget in terms of South African uh, 
infrastructure in terms of data and networks. Um, I believe each of them spend around 10 billion rand a year uh, on CapEx each. Um, you know, I, I definitely see their side of the story as well, but uh, certainly something needs to be done to, to bring down the data prices in South Africa. Um, I know after moving over to London, the value you unlock here um, is, is definitely um, inconceivable to anyone sitting that side in South Africa. So I think it'll be interesting to see what happens here. And uh, let's see in the next two months whether th there'll be any real change made or yeah, if this is gonna be held up in courts for some time. So let's move on to the next one. This one is a uh, basically a, an announcement coming out from Deliveroo. Um, so yeah, Deliveroo being the essentially Mr. Delivery, what you would call in South Africa, this is uh, one of those apps that has really revolutionized how takeaways works in London. The bulk of their workers go around the city on bicycles or scooters. They've been in the press for a, a while actually, uh, just in terms of employment legislation and not seeing those uh, bicycle workers as contractors, but actually uh, having to take a bit of responsibility uh, for these guys as employees. But let's not look at that. They were basically slapped on the wrist this week uh, with an advert that has been dismissed by the advertising authority for being misleading. Uh, have you seen anything about this? I haven't. I haven't. I saw you put it on the list, and so I'm excited to find out what they've been doing because these these delivery companies have become one of my guilty pleasures when I'm feeling lazy <laughs> and I want food delivered to my to my room to my door. Uh, so yeah, what what happened in this ad, and why did they pull it down, Chad? So it's quite an interesting one. Um, I actually, by the way, work in the same building as Deliveroo, so I found this really interesting um, and just being one of those workplaces that, uh, and yeah, as you say, one of those apps that just revolutionized the way uh, these takeaway things work. So essentially the ad is a mother walking into a house with a big bag, delivery bag, and essentially dishing out uh, meals from different providers uh, in the same bag. Now, if you ever use Deliveroo as an app, there is a bit of a limited functionality in that you can only place one order at one provider per time and each delivery incurs its own delivery fee. Now, the makers of this advert obviously knew this and instead, well, to kind of make it uh, seem transparent, they put in small text at the bottom, um, graphical restrictions apply, separate orders must be made for each restaurant. Advertising authorities saying that's not good enough. They've received 300 complaints for people who have used the app and know that that is not its functionality. So yeah, basically just a misleading advert, I would say. It's, it's amazing what these companies have to do, especially in a space like this, which is very crowded. It's very hard to differentiate yourself, right? At the end of the day, the service is the same from all providers, and you're competing on price, you're competing on brand, and this is obviously a way where they just try to sneak a little differentiation into the into the mix, <laughs> um, but unfortunately, they were caught out. I, I, don't, I don't know how companies think they can get away with this in today's age. Like maybe 10, 15 years ago, you might have been able to get away with this kind of thing, but with the internet trolls and with people being so skeptical and so like like nit nitpicky about things. I mean, it's it's just silly. <laughs> 100%. I mean, I definitely thought it was a, a funny one. And yeah, not missing our radar, um, certainly with all of the ethics breaches we've seen on our previous episodes. Uh, so let's move on to a bit more of a macro level. Uh, this one being up on, on everyone's radar, really. Uh, Trump and uh, the potential impeachment. A bit of development on that one today. There are, yeah, basically two articles released of impeachment, one being abuse of power and the second obstruction of Congress. Um, now, 
I've also just read, read a couple of mixed things. I'm not too deep on the subject matter of this one. Um, but essentially, um, Trump trying to get involved in hacking the election, if you'd like, uh, trying to get Ukraine. Allegedly. Um, Allegedly. To, Sorry, let's, uh, let's start this again. Trump allegedly trying to basically uh, fix the election or, or at least have some sort of influence on the election by uh, looking elsewhere in the world with Ukraine and actually uh, using his post to offer them two sweeteners uh, for this potential favor that he's asked. So obviously we've seen in his last election a lot of alleged um, you know, scandals with the, the data data analytica and all of that type of thing um quite interesting that basically congress has taken quite a hard stance on this and they're moving forward with this yeah it's been one of those things been brewing for a long time i I think even the moment that trump got elected um the opposition party was so distraught and so angry with it that they were looking for any excuse and then when all of this thing came up with the political interference um through russia and through cambridge analytica and all and all those kind of parties and they started to unravel some of the stories in this um it became more and more likely that they they were going to try and impeach trump um the problem with this is that it's so muddy and it's so like no one actually knows what's going on so as far as i understand they had a few committees that wrote uh, put this report together and now have unveiled these reports and these and these kinds of uh, articles of impeachment. And as far as I understand, they're going to go through the next two weeks of discussion and debate to try and figure out, like, is it impeachable or not? And then make a decision based on that. Um, but with the nature of the, the bipartisan kind of fighting across the aisle over the last over the last year or year or two it's really hard to know whether this actually comes from a genuine objective place or it's simply politics politics at, at its best um, and so it's gonna be interesting yeah. to watch to see what happens i think that we speak so much about trump he just dominates global headlines all of the time this is yet another example of just how he dominates global headlines and for good or for bad, he really is a, a character that's going to go down in history as one of the most, <laughs> I don't know what adjective to use, one of the most interesting U.S. presidents. Um, yeah, and yeah. whether he gets impeached or not, I know he's going to have a lot to say about it. And so I'm interested to see what, what comes out of his mouth in the next couple of weeks. And if it does get more yeah. serious, if he does look to get impeached, he's not going to go down without a fight. So you're going to see some serious fireworks there in the U.S., Definitely. I mean, I think I think the the, the last bit of this one, the se- the second article being that obstruction of Congress, um, has really played well into the hands of those who are bringing about this action, um, where you know they are trying to get access to this information, and he has actually obstructed them, which is why this second article has been brought about. So uh, yeah, let's have a look to see if anything meaningful happens there, or as you say, if it's, it's a typical case of politics again. What's also interesting that I wanted to bring up was I was listening to a podcast earlier today about um, with with a, with a guy called Gary Kasparov, who was an old chess master back in the day, and now he works on human rights, and it speaks a lot about Russia-US um, interrelations. And he was chatting about how Trump has become this amazing puppet for Vladimir Putin because he... Like Putin could just sit back and just relax and watch the chaos unfold in America, which is exactly what Russia wants. And so he must be sitting at home right now absolutely loving this, absolutely loving all the chaos, loving the fact that America are tearing themselves apart because they can't agree on a leader or a way forward for the country. It, it really is dark times for America, and we have to see what democracy happens and, and, and what, what transpires from this. Indeed, we'll keep our eyes 
appealed and uh, yeah, see what happens there. In terms of this next one, uh, Barry, I'd let you introduce this one, one of our favorite companies, uh, Google. <laughs> yeah, so Google, of course, is the big behemoth. It is, the th- it is the company that controls everything. And if we look back at like our generation, I would argue it's probably the strongest company we've ever seen formed, right? Right from the beginning, from just a lowly search engine to this giant company today that's now known as Alphabet, which is the holding company of all of their their subsidiaries. And it's really been a huge success story and it's kind of kickstarted the tech revolution in, in the world. And this week, there was a very interesting thing that happened. The two co-founders, the two like old honchos, the guys who were there right from the very beginning, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, have stepped down from Alphabet and are now looking, are going to stay in a board capacity, but not in a day-to-day running of the business. So this change is mostly cosmetic because these two guys actually stepped away from most of the day-to-day stuff a while ago with the new CEO that was installed a few years ago. And so this is simply a, a move from their part to kind of move into the next chapter of their life. And I think it's a huge thing to step away from a baby like that that you've built over the last 20 years and it's become so globally influential. Um, and so for them stepping down, it must have been a hell of a difficult decision. And it's going to certainly change the way that, that Google looks at itself. If we look at the way that Apple struggled after Steve Jobs left and they try to redefine their identity and redefine why they exist and what they're trying to do, Google and Alphabet are going to have to do the same thing. And so it's been interesting to see what happens with the new, the new management that gets put in place and uh, see what kind of involvement these guys have as they've stepped out of the limelight per se and start to look forward as to what they're going to do next in their careers. Yeah, I actually missed this group restructuring and it actually basically came to my attention when uh, when I clicked on the on the link that you had in our in our shared doc. Um, but yeah, basically, uh, the, the reasoning I found really funny and obviously not uh, just to just to kind of strip away from the serious bits um, where, yeah, Alphabet, the holding company was established to have obviously Google as the as the main bet, um, but the others as their other bets, um, which I thought quite a clever way of, of coming to that name. But yeah, I mean, just in terms of, uh, you know, redefining their identity and all that kind of thing, this current CEO has seen, uh, you know, profits uh, soar under his uh, reign. Um, and certainly, I think, uh, you know, the, the, the stock market definitely re- reacting positively. I think the, the uh, basically, you know, the share prices went went up by, I think, 5%. I may be, I may be off on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, certainly you're going to have to, uh, as you say, uh, decide on and how the the identity uh, changes from here um, but I mean obviously this seems to be a, a very a very capable CEO um, and uh, yeah I think as the as the two co-founders have detailed it in this particular article um, Google has grown to be a what they call you know sort of 21 year old uh, adult and it's now time to to leave the nest um, as they put it so this in their mind, seems to be the the natural move of progression for the company, um, and it'll certainly be interesting to see what happens next for Google. Yeah. So, so one more thing I wanted to add is that I I think this is going to be a pivot point for Google. I, I I kind of see Google's business model as being under serious threat right now because of this a lot of the privacy concerns, a lot of the 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 looking at advertising and how that's impacting media and how it's impacting our thoughts and how we how we'd make our decisions. And so Google in in its current form is going to have to change over the next ten or twenty years. And also as it starts to get labeled as a monopoly and starts to get increasing pressure from regulators. The current CEO is going to have to figure out how do you make Google the next 
survive as as the giant behemoth for the next 10 20 50 years and so i think we're going to look back at this point in time like you say it's now 21 it's now coming into it has to be an adult now and has to really get into the world and really show what it's worth it's going to have to adapt and pivot and i think google has done very well in the past at doing that but it's going to have to continue to do that as there's increasing pressure from regulators from governments and from the and from the public so i think it's an interesting time i think we need to look back on this on this day as an interesting pivot moment in the company is it going to go the way of Kodak? Is it going to struggle to adapt its business model and move into the new world? Or is it going to find a new way to reinvent itself once again and remain the huge influential company that it is? Yeah, so I mean, that's certainly going to be interesting to see. And uh, yeah, just great that we are part of history and we'll, we'll look back at this point in time and, and yeah, let's see, let's see what happens with them. So let's move on to our next one, Stuff I Found Interesting. Stuff I Found Interesting. Right, so the first one on this list is, as we touched on in the intro, the reason why Barry is at an alternate recording location today, load shedding being still a thing in South Africa. Now, this is quite a surprise to me. Um, obviously, I, I left there, um, you know, when, when load shedding was a thing that had, you know, taken up a, a lot of frustration uh, in a lot of the time that I was there and there was certainly a five-year gap in load shedding um, and it seems to now be back better than ever. Barry, talk us through it. Yeah, so I think it's worth um, explaining what load shedding is because I know that it's a very yes. it's a very South African term and I, I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine in the US when I was there a couple uh, about a month ago now and uh, I mentioned load shedding and he had no idea what I was talking about. So let me explain what it is. Basically, ESCOM is the, the giant power operator here in South Africa, and they operate all of the power grids. And uh, they've had a lot of issues with maintenance on their, their projects and maintenance on their sites and things going wrong in the power grid. And that's resulted in rolling blackouts where they have switched off huge parts of the country's electricity to try and manage the loads so that they don't have a complete blackout. And so what load shedding is, is they'll take certain parts of suburbs and, and they will turn off their electricity for four to six hours at a time um, during every single day in, in a lot of cases and really cause a lot of havoc in the cities because what you, what you don't realize until you have no power is how reliant you are on power, how reliant you are for Wi-Fi and for robots to work and for um, shops to run their business and for all sorts of things. And when you don't have it, all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait, it's actually super, super important. And it's the kind of problem we shouldn't be having in 2019. Like, we should have solved the power issue by yeah. now. Electricity should be widely available and should be available at all times. And so to go through this kind of period once again, like you said, it's been a while since we had this. But in the last week or two, we've gone back into load shedding. And so, for example, yesterday I had six hours of my day where I had no power whatsoever in my house. Um, and so it's, it's getting, I think... In the last couple of days, it went to what's called stage six, which is the highest it's ever been to. And what that means is that basically you're getting six to eight hours every single day, no matter where you are in the country. Luckily, tonight it's back down to level two. But once again, when I was due to record this podcast in my own house, unfortunately, ESCOM decided the other, the other, that we have to move. Um, and so load shedding itself is is very bad for the African economy. It's It really is damaging for the reputation and for the morale of the country. You just kind of feel the morale kind of drip down when something like this happens. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's tough to deal with. And it, it, feels, it feels like a problem we should have solved already. 
Yeah, I mean, it's really, really a tough one when you have to say you're lucky to have stage two. Um, stage two still being quite a bit of downtime. So, um, yeah, as you say, significant effects on on the working world, on people, you know, just running their day-to-day lives. Um, not good for traffic. Uh, so anyone out and about on the roads is really hating this. Um, and, yeah, I mean, lots of businesses resort to having generators, which uh, they have, you know, pay a big premium on electricity for for fuel and diesel and that kind of thing um and as you say in in 2019 why is this still a thing um my my thing is how do you go from stage zero to stage six in in a couple of weeks um surely well i mean i i did see something about an excessive rainfall coming about at one of the plants one of the articles i saw basically uh, come a statement being released from escom's chairperson and acting ceo jabba mabuza um just saying that he doesn't think they're failing um that that quite an interesting one for me um clearly there hasn't been any maintenance done at this plant um and you know as significant as this rainfall could be um should it result in going from stage zero to stage six yeah i think i think one of the key problems that that always gets unraveled when we have this load shedding is that we are too reliant on major power plants for our national grid right we don't have enough diversified power uh, generators or, or power plants and so what happens is when you have a big plant like madupi that goes down or has maintenance that doesn't go right or rain or whatever the story is if it takes out one of the big major plants it has a huge impact on the capacity of south africa to generate its own electricity and so we don't have enough diversification the regulation hasn't opened up enough doors for alternative uses for solar and those kinds of, of power generators. If you if you want to generate your own power, it's very, very challenging regu- from a regulation perspective. And so I, I think personally that South Africa is way too reliant on these three or four major power plants where if one goes down, yeah. which sometimes happens, you're in big, big trouble. And that's why we see this rapid expansion from a stage zero to a stage six in no time. Because if a big plant goes down, we lose a significant portion of our capacity. Yeah, definitely. Um, So, I mean, as you say, being quite reliant on uh, a small number of plants. But I think most importantly here, being reliant on one provider. Um, So, obviously, in the UK, I I might may be wrong here, but I've, I've just done a quick Google and uh, something came up there to compare 86 energy suppliers. There are, you know, it's a free market way of doing it. And I haven't had one day of, of no electricity. Very competitive. You know, everyone kind of advertises their rates quite openly. Um, you could even lock in your rates for a period of time, as I said. So basically, when I moved into this place, I did a 2020 plan. So essentially up till 2020, the rates are fixed. And by that, I've actually avoided two price increases. So yeah, definitely benefits of a free market economy. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, 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 the increase in calls to get the national regulator um, split up a bit. Definitely. And that's kind of the murmurs throughout the country and the murmurs throughout the, the business world as well, is that when is this going to be privatized and when is it going to be opened up to competitive competition, right? As you say, if one yeah. if one company has a monopoly and they don't have the accountability to have to run efficiently, they can make mistakes. They don't have the the, the social pressure of knowing that they have competition in their, in their midst. And so this is such an important piece of South Africa, such an important piece of the economy. And so there's a lot of calls for it to be privatized and kind of spread up. There are a lot of complications with that. So it's not an easy task. It's not an easy route to go. But like you say, that's the yeah. fairest way to open it up and actually fight for the best service, the best reliability to avoid these kinds of situations. South Africa can't expect to become a developed country and kind of 
continue to lead the African continent if we can't keep our lights on. It's, it's a simple, simple foundational thing that needs to feed the economy. And before we can get to any other fancy stuff, we need to fix that as well. Back to basics. So on this theme and, uh, you know, kind of just the, the natural theme of progression, really, I saw this last week uh, up on one of my social media platforms, the essentially movement of something called hashtag I'm staying. Um, and I want to kick this one off with a very funny tweet that I saw by a lead singer and as far as I know, trumpeteer of a band called The Kiffness. Um, which is the six stages of I'm staying. Stage one, denial. Stage two, denial. Stage three, denial. Stage four, denial. Stage five, denial. Stage six, hashtag I'm leaving. <laughs> so yeah, basically this movement from, from what I can see is essentially a bunch of people getting together, um, a, a whole bunch of South Africans trying to invoke a bit of positivity, a bit of hope, um, and really the, the trying to kind of get the ideals going. Um, and yeah, rallying behind each other to stay in the country. Um, the fact that this movement was created for me obviously invokes um, the fact that a lot of people are leaving. Um, you know, me being being one of them, and I'd probably say about 60% of my close friend group uh, having also moved over in the last two years. Um, so, you know, being there still in South Africa, what is the stay, I'm Staying movement all about? Is it genuine or is it really just a, a bunch of people trying to kind of, uh, you know, feel feel better about everyone else leaving? Yeah, so it's, it's a topic that's is it's difficult to broach and it's a difficult one because it has a lot of other connotations and undertones that are socially and politically challenging in South Africa. As far as I understand, the nexus of it lives on a Facebook group. So the Facebook group is kind of the home for it. And, and like you say, it's a place for people to post good news about South Africa or kind of encouraging messages about why, why they are staying in the country. And the reason, like you say, is that we've had a huge, we continue to have a huge brain drain where a lot of our young, top talented people are leaving the country for greener pastures, either in the UK, in the US, Australia, Asia, etc., and so this is a kind of a pushback against that, trying to encourage people to stay in the country and work on some of the things that South Africa is struggling with. The intention of the group, I think, comes from a good place. I think that the intention yeah. is from a good place. It's, it's an understanding of we want to fight for South Africa. We are South Africans. We don't want to leave. We want to stay and actually help make this country better. But yeah. what, what happens in these kind of mass social media movements, and we've seen it on thousands of other occasions, is it becomes a means of rationalizing things to yourself without actually doing anything. Yeah. Right, And so my kind of personal feelings on it was that when I see those posts is that what I see is I see people complaining. I see people rationalizing to themselves why they're staying, trying to make themselves a hero for staying. And they're not a hero for staying, yeah. right? Everyone's life circumstances are so different. And so you can't judge one person because 100%. they left versus they stayed. And what it does is yeah. it gives them the kind of the impression that they're doing something it gives them that that little like tick of dopamine that says i did my part today i posted my facebook post i liked that tweet or whatever i did <laughs> and that gives me the, the feeling that i've done something for south africa but yes south africa the real south africa is unchanged and so it really frustrates me because i am a passionate south african i want to be here and i want to help to grow this country and so i'm trying to take action in the real world to do it again yeah. social media is not action right we've we've, we've got this really mixed up because we've seen so much activism and so many like revolutions started through social media. For example, the Egypt uprising and various examples around the world. We've seen great examples of social media which kind of catalyzes movements and catalyzes revolutions. But that's what it does. It catalyzes it. It doesn't actually do the revolution. It doesn't actually implement it, right? 
And so a group like I'm staying, yeah. while it is, while the intention I think is good, and I, I, I agree with the message, but the way it's implemented and the fact that people are just on there every day rationalizing the decision to themselves that they're staying in the country for some moral reason, but on, in their own personal time, all they care about is themselves and they don't do any work to actually push South Africa forward. And so those are kind of my yep. thoughts. I'd be curious to know from your side, Chad, because obviously you were South African and now you're in London. What is the feeling from South Africans on that side for this kind of debate? Uh, I haven't actually br- broached the subject um, anywhere, but I certainly will be. Um, I think it's interesting. I think you articulated it very well there um, in terms of it being for people rationalizing their decision and, and kind of getting that moral high ground for, you know, staying, choosing to stay. And, and, and really, as you say, feeling like they deserve uh, some sort of pat on the back for, for saying they're staying. And I think I read a very interesting article written by a guy by the name of Andile Zulu, him having a, a personal blog. Um, and, and yeah, basically, he's, he's sort of detailed that as good as the intention of this movement may be, um, it fails to bring any significant action, which is what you mentioned as well. Um, and instead, all it does is instills hope and idealism. And, you know, South Africa's had this in the past. He explains how, you know, pictures of the past, like Soro Ramaphosa being this big change that was going to, you know, do so much for the country has has really failed. Um, and, and, you know, various other examples as well. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's I think it's an interesting article. I certainly would go and uh, go and read it if you, you know, curious to find out about what's happening in South Africa and um, essentially the, the sentiment there. Um, you know, I definitely do salute you for 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 being uh, being there on the ground and really wanting to to do that change. Um, and and certainly on 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 Barry's part, you know, I know I know it's not uh, really just a, a pat in the back, and he's really there for dr- dramatic change. And uh, and yeah, uh, I, I definitely salute you on that on that front. Um, but as you say, you know, somebody who has left for whatever reason um, is kind of uh, you know looked at in a negative light. Um, and I, I definitely think if as you say back to basics uh, you know get all of, get everything right um and then let's then then let's talk about how we did everything so well rather than you know just trying to be positive and ultimately you know corruption in government and poverty everywhere around the country crime being a massive thing low electricity etc etc the list goes on um you know that ultimately not having changed so yeah i completely agree with you there yeah, definitely. I think it's too much talk and not enough action, right? One of my biggest frustrations, yeah. one of my biggest pet peeves with people here in South Africa, especially my, my, my white friends, to be honest, is that there's a lot of complaining, a lot of like um, looking down on South Africa and looking down on the problems that we're facing and, and talking like rubbish about our country. And there's not enough actual action of saying, cool. If, if, I, if I complain about this thing, how can I make it better in my own way? How can I work with organizations that are trying to make this better? And obviously, I understand that one person is not going to change the world, right? One person is not going to turn everything on its head. But if all, of, if all of the young people in South Africa who actually cared about the country actually just took a few steps of action, got away from Facebook, got away from Facebook groups, and just got out to the community and met someone who's different than them, all right? Or go to help in an underprivileged community or try and build a business that's serving a particular need in the community. That kind of action yeah. is much more valuable and is what South Africa needs, less so than talk. South Africans love talking and they love shouting at each other and, and, and writing comments and all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> if they just use a little yeah. bit of that energy in the real world, so outside of Facebook in the real South Africa, that's when change comes. And if you're not gonna, if you're not gonna be willing to fight for that change, if you're not gonna actually work for that change, then don't complain, right? Don't complain, and then and also yep. don't don't try and get a pat on the head for sticking around, even though you're not doing anything. 
that uh, I'm gonna get 100%. I'm gonna get off my soapbox now. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Um, yeah, absolutely, completely agree on that one. Um, and yeah, I mean, I I think it's a good movement. Um, but yeah, let's see if any real change happens there. Barry, I'm gonna let you go through the next one. An interesting novel. Yes. So again, I brought the prop. So let's show it to the YouTube subscribers over there. Oh, fantastic. It's a book uh, by the name of Eleanor. It's called Eleanor Oliphant is Completely Fine. And it's a novel by a writer from Scotland called Gail Honeyman. And what I found amazing was that this is her debut novel and she is just turned 40 years old. So she was working in admin at a, behind a desk for her whole career, got to the age of 40, realized that amazing. she didn't actually want to be doing what she was doing, quit her job with basically no plan other than to write this book, <laughs> wrote this book and has had huge success out of nowhere with it. Um, wow. And so it's a really, really cool story. And putting her own personal story aside, the book is incredible. This is one of the best fiction novels I've read in a long time. Um, it's not the kind of book I normally read. I was looking for a lighter read. And this is a very light, easy-to-read story. It, it really goes very quickly. I read it in about two days. Um, but it's such a beautiful story. And what the story focuses on is this lady called Eleanor Oliphant. And it's a story about loneliness. That's that's the whole that's the whole book is about loneliness. And it follows her life. And it's, it's interesting because you can kind of see the author's life in Eleanor's life, right? Because Eleanor is this okay. 40-year-old who's, who's working at a graphic design agency and doing desk work and going home every weekend, doesn't have many friends, doesn't have a partner, is living this very, very lonely life, even though she's surrounded by people all the time. And it's a fantastic um, exposition of what does the, the, the anxiety and loneliness that, that millennials are feeling in, in this world these days and how a lot of the fact that even though we're more connected than ever, we have more Facebook friends than ever, we are surrounded by people all the time, yeah. there's this tendency to isolate ourselves and this tendency to kind of live our lives in silos and not interact with real humans in real time at depth or yeah, with yep. depth at least, and so it's a it's a fantastic story, and it does it hits all of these points without kind of pushing in your face. It just lets you live through the story right. of this woman, and you watch as she kind of grows in confidence and grows in her life, and actually turns her life around with very very small changes to her lifestyle. So it's unlike things I normally don't read books like this. So I was very surprised that I enjoyed this, to be honest. When I picked it up, I was going to give it a go. um, And I found it fantastic. So I just want to recommend it for anyone who's looking for a book for this December break. It's a nice book to read on a beach or on a a, a hammock or just in your bed over December. Very easy to read, but a lovely story and a fantastic message behind it. Amazing. It definitely sounds empowering of of how somebody, yeah, at that you know, young age, um, but, uh, you know, doing something very different to a lot of people in just living out the sort of day-to-day rat race, um, getting her passion going and putting her everything into something that has clearly touched a lot of people's lives. Um, And, you know, just on the theme of loneliness, I think it's really important. Um, You know, big cities like London, New York, um, there's so many people, um, but basic human interaction is lacking in the way that you could imagine like you you honestly um are just a number here you know there is you're just lacking that that basic and uh it's really it's really interesting how in a in a world or in a city with so many people some people can feel so alone and it's so easy to to feel so alone when everyone's in their own little bubbles um so yeah i definitely think that sounds like a great read um, and i would be interested to read it um so thanks barry Let's uh, look ahead. Um, This is our piece generally on tech and movements in the world. Let's head on. Looking ahead. 
So this is actually one that we were meant to chat about last week, but obviously we had such a full agenda, we decided to pull it off. So it is a week old, but yeah, basically China due to introduce face scans for mobile users. Now we've seen on various platforms and profiles, you mentioned it earlier in this episode, the uh, basically the phenomenon of the troll, people feeling empowered behind their the face of their screen uh, and really just being being bold and, and saying things they generally wouldn't. Um, this is essentially a, a policy to uh, make sure that people who post online content are who they say they are. They will have to provide face scans, which would need to match ID information provided. What do you think? It's it's fascinating. It's another example of this Chinese experiment that's happening just outside of the Western world, where they're testing all sorts of new social structures and social kind of taboo topics in a very interesting way, and in a lot of cases, very nefarious ways. Right. So we've seen we've seen China unveil a level of facial recognition that has been unseen throughout the rest of the world, right? The amount of facial recognition in that country is crazy. From every concert, every um, public transport station, every um, public office, everywhere, there's cameras that are recording everything. And this is yet another example of them collecting even more data on their citizens, even more facial data to actually track citizens across the country. And then, as you say, to monitor their online postings. And, just to remind everybody, their online their online world is also highly regulated and highly censored and very very firewall um, intensive as well, and so it's it's yeah. it doesn't surprise me at all coming from China. I think we've seen the right amount of uproar from the rest of the world saying this is this is getting yeah. into dangerous territory, and the fact that you have no other option if you want to register a SIM card if you want to buy a new phone you have to submit your face and that's just how it works, and that unfortunately feeds the data back to the Chinese government which then they use for all the other services as well, and so from my perspective I think it's quite worrying I think that it's a terrifying level of surveillance and a terrifying level of, of data data um, capturing. Um, and it's it's something that we're gonna have to watch and see what happens. I, if I was in China right now, I would feel I would feel quite hard done by. I don't know what you think, Chad. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, elsewhere in the world, we do have services where we voluntarily provide our facial data. I'm talking about the iPhone, where you know you have that 3D facial recognition uh, for yeah face ID. Um, but yeah, again, this is very different to government holding all this information. Um, and as you say, when you're in a place where there is so much firewalls in the internet space and so much, you know, kind of cutting out uh, in terms of even things like TV, um, where government really does have such an overarching um, channel to their people, this is, I completely agree, um, really, really scary. Um, and yeah, I mean, for, for a country with so many people who really have no choice on the matter, um, you know, it's really, really an interesting development. So yeah, terrifying for anyone who's there, um, but we'll certainly watch on uh, from the other side of the world. Uh, shall we move on? Just one more thing before we move on. Uh, you, you, what you said has kind of triggered a thought for me. You were talking about how we voluntarily give up our face. I was reading a great article about, yeah. do you remember that the app Face app? People were making themselves look older or look younger or making them look female or look yes, male. Absolutely. So that app was went very viral and was like a fad for like two weeks or so. And uh, it was just an example of how we just willingly give up this information. And they found out that 35 yep. million people had used that app. So 35 million different faces have been submitted to this app. And the app owner lives in Russia. He's some dude living in Russia. And so you don't know what he's doing with that. And it's just an example of how 
like it's so easy to get people to give you their information they don't even think about it they're like oh i can look at grandpa yep. cool sign me up let me send my stuff through right <laughs> they don't read the privacy policy yep. they don't understand what's going on and so it's an example of how this privacy conversation comes up again and again and again because we do stupid things with our data yep. um and so yeah i just thought i'd bring that up we speak about voluntarily sharing our faces didn't know that. So yeah, I definitely saw on my profiles all of the older and younger looking friends of mine. Um, but yeah, I didn't know that they, that's what they were signing up for. And uh, we, I mean, we spoke we spoke about this a couple of weeks back. Um, it, it is it is certainly worrying. Um, and I mean, something like Snapchat as well. Um, I went to a talk that was hosted by Investec with uh, one of the popular kind of social media lawyers, Emma Sadler in South Africa. One of the one of the people really speaking in this space. She's great. She's um, great. And essentially. She is, she is fantastic, yeah. And, uh, you know, she essentially was, yeah, speaking to basically how they own the pictures you put up on the platform. And, you know, that technology really being very advanced. I mean, to put a filter um, and completely alter your facial profile while still being cohesive, they are really mapping out all of the key patterns uh, on your face. Um, and, you know, you don't even have ownership of that information. So definitely interesting um, and if anything, hopefully we'll get you kind of thinking about these types of things. Shall we move on? Yeah, let's do it. Develop and grow. So we're at that section of the podcast where we look at look to ourselves and look to becoming better people. And, and this one really quite an interesting one. So obviously I started a, a new job last week um, and was thrown on my first day into a wider team meeting um, where they basically have this phenomenon of one good and one bad. Now it's really simpl- simple, really simplistic, nothing complicated going on here. But basically the fact for me that every single person in the team no matter how junior, how senior, has their moment to shine and has to think about something good and has to think about something bad. Um, for me, I just feel like it's a really organic way of flattening hierarchy. You've got top management in the room. They are listening to your problem. Ultimately, they are also rewarding you for things you did well. Um, so I just think this is such a positive thing, such a simple thing to implement, um, but it gives a feeling of support to employees of all levels. It also gives the opportunity for reward. Um, and yeah, I just thought it was such a nice thing. I've not seen it before. Why, why do you think it's so powerful, Chad? Did, did you get the sense people were braver in what they were bringing up? Or was it because they had the good and the bad that they could sandwich in their... their um complaints or sandwich in their criticism with something positive what do you think made it so impactful i don't think the word brave even came into question people were authentically themselves um i don't think people were holding back for you know being polite um in not voicing things that went bad and so for me i i felt like obviously this needs to be implemented in the right way which obviously it has in this case um where yeah people are just genuinely interested in um making their the sorry where managers are genuinely interested in making their employees' lives better, helping out. This is essentially a, a platform where, you know, if you've, you've got something that's really struggling, you're really struggling with something that you can't pull across the line. And instead of it kind of falling as a big burden on you, this gives you an opportunity to, amongst your peers, um, get the support. Somebody on your team might know how to deal with this problem. Um, and for me, without this platform, a lot of the times we just, you know, sit in our own 
world and our own feeling of negativity, don't know how to move past something. Um, and something as simple as this opens the doors to, you know, getting that insight, getting that advice from colleagues and ultimately getting the ears of top management in a way that I've not seen before, which I think is powerful. Um, and, you know, I think reward is and motivation is important in a workplace as well. Um, so being able to, you know, be proud of the things that you've achieved in your week um, and, you know, getting genuine sort of uh, reward and, uh, and you know, that feeling of accomplishment from your peers and top management, I think is quite a powerful one. Maybe also going back to our journaling conversation from a, a past episode, maybe that's a cool way yeah. to apply it in your own life, right? Is sitting down with that journal and for every day picking one good and one bad. Because um, often in journaling, we kind of, we hate on ourselves. We talk about all the stuff that's going wrong. Yeah. And a little bit of gratitude, a little bit of appreciation for something that's gone well in that day is also really cool. So maybe an, an idea is to apply Definitely. it to your own life. Uh, in meetings is great, but also at home by yourself. 100%. A great approach and yeah, something nice to add. Um, let's talk about the next one. One of the reasons why we're we're doing this podcast. I mean, I certainly, when I listen back to this, and I really do apologize if it's if it's a thing, but I'm trying <laughs> to get better at it. And that's one of the reasons. I say a lot of sort ofs, a lot of ums, a lot of you knows, a lot of a lot of kind, you know, <laughs> I just did it. Um, so this is something that's quite interesting. And one of the reasons why I've joined on this podcast as well. So talk us through it. Yeah, so th as you say, one of the main reasons we're doing this is to try and look at the speech that we use and, and get better at articulating ourselves. Yeah, so a little bit behind the scenes at, at the podcast here is that one of the one of the main reasons we're doing this is to get better at public speaking and get better at at articulating our thoughts in a way that doesn't have all these verbal ticks that I'm sure you guys are very annoyed by, um, and we're <laughs> we're annoyed by it too, right? And so we, we listen back to ourselves, we cringe because we we are new to this <laughs> and we are getting better every week, but we are still nowhere near where we should be. And uh, why Absolutely. I think this is interesting is because I've been thinking a lot about words recently. Um, I, I realize that a lot of the stuff I've been reading in the last couple of weeks has been thinking about the power of words. And uh, what's interesting for me is that the vocabulary we use is such an interesting indicator of our mood, of how we're feeling at the time, and what kind of what kind of mindset we have, right? A lot of people, if you have a very limited vocabulary, you're using certain adjectives and certain words over and over and over again, yeah. and they build these patterns and these loops in your mind that might constrain you from thinking outside the box or might constrain you from okay. feeling things outside of the box. And so, for example, if you only use the word, I'm fine or I'm good, right, and that's your standard response at all times, all of a sudden that response becomes autopilot and you're not actually thinking carefully about how you're responding in that in that time. Or for example, yeah. if you're using an adjective, everything is amazing. Everything's amazing and fantastic and amazing, right? <laughs> Again, you're constraining yourself in another in another way. And so it's just, it's just a yeah. thought that the vocabulary we use is so habitual and it means so much to us that it's worth thinking about the kinds of things that you say to yourself and to other people again and again and again and evaluating is that actually doing good for you? Is it actually serving you? Is it making you a better person? Or are there ways you can change that language slightly? So from I can't do something to I can't do something yet. Or from I don't want to do that to it's not my priority right now. Or there's various like yeah, interesting yeah. linguistic changes you can do. And what that comes from That's is it. just understanding what do you say on a regular basis? What do you what what are the kind of things you say again and again and again? And trying to yeah. figure out are there better ways to say that? And so I thought I'd bring it up because that's what we're trying to do with this podcast. So it's a bit meta here. We're trying to get better at this. But for <laughs> listeners, I hope that there's something that you can take out of this as well, knowing that 
We all have those things we say so often. And the words that we use, even though we don't think it at the time, have such power in directing our thoughts, our intentions, our feelings, and then our actions in the world. And so your words are your thoughts. And when you articulate themselves, they need to be powerful. They need to be um, empowering for you. And they need to make you a better person. I don't know what you think, Chad. I mean, I'm just nodding my head here because I am guilty of every single one of those things. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, I, I need to start reading a lot more i definitely agree with you in that um your basically your, your commonly used words limit you in feeling and in, in thinking and in, in all of that kind of thing so i certainly need to do some more reading and yeah this is ultimately as you said the reason why my main reason for for doing this um alongside being up to date with what's happening in the world and you know having those deep conversations as we said there isn't a place for that and in this sort of shallow society where everyone is ultimately to themselves like we just discussed it is good to have that place where you can have those deeper discussions but certainly vocal basically i mean yeah certainly vocal speech and and public speaking is one of the other reasons. Um, and it is why, as I said in, in one of the previous episodes, I attribute my success in my last set of interviewing. So something as small as a couple of episodes already has made a profound impact. And certainly I think reading a few books and improving the vocabulary and basically just not getting into that autopilot, being a little bit more, um, placing a bit more emphasis on, on, on the thought, you know, taking a few seconds to think about the word that you really want to say rather than just uh, pulling it from from the words that are closer you know open up that shelf and 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 dig a little bit deeper um which is which is exactly what i'm i'm trying to do as well so yeah thanks for for bringing that up and i'm completely guilty <laughs> we're getting better week by week we're getting better week by week and and the fact of the matter is that the more you practice the better you get right and so it's not it's not yeah. about eliminating every um by the next episode it's about figuring out every <laughs> single time can we get a little bit better can we use a little bit of different words can we think a little bit differently because at the end of the day communication is such an important like skill and such an important thing and it's powerful in this world if you can communicate with clarity and with feeling and with intensity and can really like make a message go across to another person you can do whatever you want in this world Um, and whether that's written whether that's speaking whether that's um, communicating via other ways it's fantastic so it's it's worth working on all the way back to basics. That's kind of the theme of this episode. And <laughs> it's a good, I, I love it. So let's move on to the next one. We've got a question from a listener. What's on your mind? So I'm going to introduce this one uh, just because this one is aimed at Barry. And I think uh, it's, it's fantastic. So we have a listener who basically comments on almost every single one of our YouTube videos. And it's great to have that engaging sort of platform with listeners. So we really encourage all of you to put those comments up. If it's a quick little thought, just put it up. We love seeing it. So the question is, so this one's from somebody by the name of Dean Kennedy. If Barry feels up to it and you can fit it in, I would love to hear his take on the trolley problem as an added twist while also pondering if this situation is acted out in a vehicle simulator with hundreds if not thousands of subjects who have no prior knowledge of the experiment what the results would be and can these be built into an ai system quite a loaded question barry let's unpick this one Uh, go for it 
Yeah, so you, you're unleashing the beast here, right? So <laughs> Barry always feels up to these kind of conversations. Um, so yeah, the, the, the trolley problem is is one of the fundamental questions in philosophy. And we, we chatted a little bit about it in the last episode when we were talking about consequentialism versus deontology. And the trolley problem is the practical implementation of that of that thought process, right? So just to remind ourselves, a consequentialist point of view is looking at a ri- an action is right if the consequences end up being right, no matter what happens in between, right? Whereas a deontological point of view says, no, no, the intentions of the action determine whether it's right or wrong. And even if there's bad consequences, if you act with good intentions, you did the right thing. So that's a quick reminder about the two thought processes. So the trolley problem goes like this. Imagine you are on a bridge, right? And there is a train barreling down the tracks and uh, there are two tracks the train could go onto. So it can either keep going on the track it's currently on or you can pull a lever and make the train go onto the second pair of tracks, right? That's kind of the context. On the original track, there is, for example, five human beings that are tied down to the train and will die if the train keeps going over that, over that track. Alternatively, if you switch it to the other track, there is one person on that track, right, who will die if you switch to that track. So the idea is, you as the third party bystander, you're watching this happen, and there's only one of two options. Do you pull that lever? Right. So, for example, do you pull the lever to save the save the five people and kill the one, or do you leave the lever and kill the five people and save the one? Right. So that's that's how the trolley problem starts. And most people, uh, I'm okay. curious to think what you think, Chad. Most people will pull the lever there. Most people will say, sure. "I'm going to save the five people," and because even though it's a tragedy that the one person dies, to save the five people is actually doing it for the greater good. So I'm going to pull the lever. Yep. Is that intuition correct yep. for you? hundred percent, yeah. Cool. So that, that's exactly what most people say. That's the, so then, then, then it takes you to another level. So then it says, cool, imagine the same situation, but instead of a lever this time, the train is barreling down the tracks towards the five people, and you're standing on a bridge above the tracks, right? And there's a fat man standing next to you. And you have a choice to push the fat man off the bridge onto the track and stop the train to Gosh. save the five right so theoretically now it's the same it's the same thing you are you're killing the one to save the five but when you ask people if they're going to push the fat man off the bridge all of a sudden the intuitions change a lot and there's a much more 50 50 split between the people who say i i can't do that right and so yeah what what, what do you what would you do chad to be honest i don't i don't know (laughs) i i'm now stuck i'm stuck barry Hopefully this this train can slow down. <laughs> that that's exactly it, right? It, it it even though the actual context is exactly the same, the calculation is exactly the same. The mere fact of changing me pulling a lever, which is kind of detached from the whole situation, I'm just playing God and I'm making a decision. All of a sudden now I have to actually physically push someone off a bridge and all of a sudden it feels very very different. And so what the trolley problem does, it then goes into a, there's a thousand different variations of this kind of thing. There's 20 and then there's 10 and then you push a guy and you're pulling a there's like a thousand of these variations what the problem tries to show you is that our intuitions about what is right and what is wrong are very messy and people do not agree on them right so when you ask this these questions to like a mass audience you'll often find a 50 50 split or a 60 40 split, and you'll be surprised by the number of people who disagree with your intuition on whatever situation is in front of you and so what the trolley problem shows, again, is that if we're going to try and decide on a complete set of ethics that we're going to program into a self-driving car, we're not going to agree, 
right? We're not going to find a set of ethics yeah. because this is this becomes very, very real with a self-driving car, right? If you imagine a self-driving car situation barreling down a highway and there's an accident up front yeah. and he can't stop, does he swerve out of the way into oncoming traffic and destroy the, the car in that in that lane or does it stay in this lane and, des- and destroy the car in front of it, right? So that's a very real trolley yeah. problem yeah. that we're going to face in the coming years. And so I think the question that Dean is, is kind of bringing up, I hope, I hope I'm doing it justice, but I think the question he's bringing up yep. is that this kind of discussion is very difficult to program because we don't have consensus. We don't have an algorithm or an understanding of what an ethical framework looks like that everyone can agree with. Everyone's ethics depend on their upbringing, the way they think, the way they were educated, yep. where they were born, and a thousand different factors. And so for a car company yep. to decide how we're going to interact with this real-life trolley problem is very, very difficult. Yep. And it's one of those things where we're not going to know how to deal with it until we actually get there. And uh, for the philosophers, it's fascinating because this has been a thought experiment for decades right and all of a sudden it's becoming very very real and uh, a lot of their their thinking and their thought processes are starting to be tested in the real world the last part of his question was thinking about let me just read it here um if it's acted out in a vehicle simulator with hundreds if not thousands of subjects who had no prior knowledge of the experiments what would the results be and this has actually happened so there was a research organization that, that did an online survey that didn't talk at all about the trolley problem it didn't include any of the philosophy it didn't do any of that it simply had an interactive like web app where people would go on and play this yeah. game. So they give you that game of the, the fat man and the, the five on the tracks and people would vote on whatever they would do. And they did thousands of these variations and the, the thing went very viral and so they got, I think, 200,000 responses. Um, obviously looking for wow. the trends in the, in the marketplace and the trends from real people who don't understand it's a psychological thought experiment and they just think it's like a cool game or whatever the story is. Um, and those results were very interesting because they, they bared out what we thought is that there is no consensus. There is a complete range of thoughts across the board. And even on these very, like, even on the first question I asked you, where there's a high probability you're going to pull the lever, there's still a significant non-negligible portion that are not going to pull the lever because they want no, no part of it yeah. at all. They just want to leave it completely. And so it yeah. was a very interesting experiment and a very interesting realization that we are nowhere near consensus. If we're going to try and decide what as a world we're going to put into these cars, we actually have got no idea at this stage. And that is scary because it's, it's coming, the technology is on the way and real life philosophy is going to have to be in play. But if we can't agree on anything, then I don't know how we're going to move forward. So that's kind of, if I had to try and answer the three parts, I hope it did yeah. it justice, Dean. Chad, do you have any other thoughts or comments? I mean, being a person who's looking on this completely cold, I think you articulated it perfectly. So I definitely understand the um, massive problem that this is. Um, and yeah, it's, it's a fascinating one to see where you, you sit on it. Um, I certainly think if, you know, if Trump was playing this game and he was the one in the Congress people with the five, I think I know what he would do. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, thanks for, for answering that question. And, and Dean, thanks for, for asking it. Um, you know, this, this show isn't uh, what it is without uh, our listeners. And yeah, we, we, we definitely appreciate the questions. So yeah, great question and, and great answer. Thanks, Barry. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that brings us to the end of our podcast. As I said, they all try to stop us today, um, but we just... It, it just didn't happen. We, we, we had to soldier on and, and hopefully we produced something that you enjoyed listening to. Um, yeah, I mean, our, our representation around the globe has grown even more. So this last week, I, I, I had a little look on our stats and we're now in Sweden and uh, Australia as well. 
amazing. It's so cool to see it growing and so cool to see everyone from around the world joining in. We really appreciate all the kind words and the kind comments. As Chad says, we're going to do our utmost to do this every single week. No matter what ESCOM throws at us, no matter what the tube throws at us, we're going to get the job done because uh, we really enjoy it and we really enjoy hearing from you guys as well. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode, thoughts on where we could improve. We're always trying to make this better, so please let us know where we can improve. And as always, if you have any questions via voice note or via text, please send them through to us. We'd love to chat and hear what your thoughts are on these various topics we're discussing. Awesome. Well, yeah, as always, Barry, it's been a pleasure. Would you like to throw us off with the final jingle? Sure thing. You have listened to Across the Pond, episode five. We'll see you next week. Have a good one. Pond, across the pond, with Barry and Chad.